Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This week's episode was first released as a Patreon bonus a couple of months ago. The next Patreon episode will be out in the penultimate week of October, so do please look out for that. You can support this show by signing up for a season ticket at patreon.com forward slash shorts were short. When Shorts Were Short only concerns itself with what was actually a very narrow window in football history when teams wore, well, short shorts, the podcast will only cover football from 1954 when Umbro made their first England kit with shorter shorts, a design that was widespread within English football by the mid-50s, to 1992 when short shorts were all but finished as Umbro's baggy shorts for Tottenham's new kit ahead of the 91 FA Cup final quickly caught on. I'm Daniel Ruiz-Tyson. This is when shorts were short. If the shorts weren't short, we don't talk about it. The guest for this Patreon special is former Liverpool and Scotland. Well, what was he? That's the thing. He could play so many different positions. It is Steve Nicholl. Arriving from Air United for £300,000 in October 1981, a considerable sum in those days for someone not yet out of his teens, Nicholl would have to wait until Joe Fagan succeeded Bob Paisley a couple of years later for his first team breakthrough. The club were now entering their second decade, dominating the English game, and even the likes of Terry McDermott and Ray Kennedy, established first-teamers at Newcastle and Arsenal respectively, had struggled to hold down a regular place in their first two seasons with the club after arriving in 1974. Signed as a fullback, the young Steve Nichols' breakthrough would actually come in place of the only marginally older Ronnie Whelan when the left-sided midfielder got injured early on in the 1983-84 treble winning season. Nicholl would join the fabled three great Scots of that era in the team, Dalgleish, Hansen and Souness. At the end of that season, that aforementioned great trio were down to two, Souness having moved to Sampdoria. But I would argue that in time, Nicholl would show that he belonged in that great company. He could play right back, he could play at left back, to devastating effect as he showed in that 87-88 season when Dalgleish, responding to Everton's mid-80s supremacy, unleashed a drastically revamped Liverpool side on the country with Barnes, Beardsley, Aldridge and co. He could play right and left midfield and he could certainly play centre-back too. The game came easy to Steve Nicholl and for me, he walks into any Liverpool eleven. It's hard to understand how he won only 27 caps for Scotland. But then again, there was still one more cap than his Liverpool skipper, Alan Hansen. His time at the top with Liverpool should have lasted longer. But Hillsborough had a huge effect, of course, on the city of Liverpool, the club and the players. By the time Kenny Dalgleish had resigned in February 91, the stress of Hillsborough having claimed him, Nicholl was one of a number of players himself struggling. These were young men, 
offered no counselling. Both they and the club were struggling to process the enormity of the tragedy. Meantime, on the pitch, Graham Souness had been persuaded to take over from Dalgleish in April of 91. George Graham's strong Arsenal side would claim their second title in three seasons just weeks after Souness's arrival at Anfield, but there was confidence that the club's former inspirational captain would restore them to the top of the domestic tree come 91-92. But something clearly wasn't right. And in this interview with Steve Nicholl, we look back at the club's difficult 91-92 season, the team ravaged by an incredible spate of injuries, experienced players leaving, kids thrown in before they were ready, new signings struggling, and the new manager at a loss to understand what situation he had walked into, one that would almost claim his life come the end of the season. It was a year when it became clear the Reds' near two decades of domestic dominance was at an end. This is Steve Nicholl. Before we go on to look at that 91-92 season, I just want to take you back to Liverpool's last title in 1990. Could you see at the time that that Liverpool team needed a fair amount of work if it was going to challenge again for more titles? I wouldn't say a fair amount of work. Listen, they always, they always did. And most teams in general that are winning add a couple of little pieces just to keep the thing going. I mean, and that that season was tough because of the the season previous. I certainly wasn't at my best. I don't think there was a, there was a few that weren't at the best, but we still managed to win the league. So I think I think to push on, maybe a couple of signings. Because it's always good. It's always good to to make a couple of signings when you're winning, because it just keeps everybody on the toes. Nobody gets complacent, and if you keep doing that, and you keep adding quality, then at the very least you're going to you know you're going to stay where you are, uh, with the objective obviously to try and get better all the time. Just on that 1990 team, looking back at the great Liverpool teams of that 70s era through the 80s and coming into the 90s. I think many fans might say, okay, that 90 team was maybe the weakest of those title winners. But I think what happened for me that was really interesting, when Liverpool won the title again for the first time in 30 years in 2020, there were quite a few features on that 1990 side. And it certainly struck me belatedly what an achievement it was for you guys to win that title just a year after Hillsborough because nobody would have understood what you guys, who were all young men, were going through. There would have been no counselling for you guys. You just had to get on with it. And for me, it, it, it almost just hit me one day. It was like, wow, okay, it might not have been as good as the 88 side, might not have been good as that 84 treble winning side, but what these guys did, no one else had to do. And they actually won the title just, just a year after this horrendous tragedy. Were you able to understand at the time, you know, the magnitude of that achievement, another league title just 12 months on from Hillsborough? Not at all. It's only now you, you understand and realise what we did, considering the circumstances, considering what was going on with the team and all around the team and all around the club. And I mean, you know, I said to you before about trying to remember things about 91, 92. I mean, after the Hillsborough, the next two or three years are there's a little bit of fog, to be honest. And and again, it's always easy when you you can look back, but the the club was in a fog for a good three four years. 
you know, the, the club, and I, and I always say this, when you get to Liverpool, when I did, it's a winning mentality. Everything's about the first team. Every single thing that happens is about the first team. It's about the first team winning on a Saturday, home or away. That, that the whole club, all the way through, the, the kids, the, the resies, you name it, everything was geared towards the first team. And after Hillsborough, the complete opposite occurred. Everything was geared towards things around Hillsborough. The focus moved from the only thing that mattered was the team to the only thing that mattered was doing the right thing as far as everything surrounding Hillsborough was concerned. In your autobiography, Five League Titles and a Packet of Crisps, you were commendably honest about your own difficulties dealing with the fallout from Hillsborough, its impact on you both on and off the pitch. Again, was this only something that you could fully understand years later? Yeah, because I didn't really think about it until years later. I mean, you look, you think about it now, and I know what happened, and as you said, it's in my book what happened and the things I was doing, but there's nothing you could do about it. I knew at the time I was doing things I shouldn't be doing, but it still didn't stop me doing Now, one of the things I prided myself in was my professionalism. Yes, you know the stories that we used to go and drink and all the rest of that, but we always did it at the right time. And that was why, you know, it, it sounds great. The myth sounds great that players are out getting smashed and then winning games and blah. blah. That, that's that's not that. But that's what they are. They're myths. You know, the Liverpool teams before me uh, and the ones I was in, yes, we enjoyed ourselves, but we did it at the right time. And that was what changed for me. I started doing it at the wrong time. And I kind of knew, well, I knew I was doing it and I couldn't do anything to stop it. And it wasn't actually until I left the club and went to Knox County that I actually started doing things the way I was previously uh, and what I should have been doing. So you knew that what you were doing was wrong professionally, but did you know why you were doing it, though? Did you did you know it was linked to Hillsborough? No, no, not at all. No, we don't, because... That would that would suggest that, that that you know the cause and everything else, which means a normal person would do something about the cause and the rest of it. But when you're in a bit of a fog and things are not clear and it just kind of keeps going and going and going, you're not thinking clearly. And so you can't do anything about it because you're not in a position to do anything about it. And there wasn't anybody in a position to, to, to put me or any of the other guys on it. Just before we started recording this, you said the 91-92 season and a bit after that is a bit of a fog for you. So I'll do my best to remind you. I'm going to begin with my recollection of 91-92 in terms of where you were as a player. You were playing at centre-half for most of that season. And to me, you looked the part, which I think most most Liverpool fans would argue that Stevie Nicol always looked the part regardless of where he played. I want to ask you, though, where you felt your game was at that point in your career? Because in 89, you'd won Footballer of the Year, hadn't you? I can't remember if it was the Football Writers or all the PFA yeah, of the Year. Football Writers, and it was primarily because I played centre-back. Yeah, that was the year Alan Hansen was out for most of the year. Okay, so wh- where did you feel your game was at that time? Because you're still relatively young, aren't you, at that point? Late 20s, aren't you, 91? 91, I was 30. Okay. Yeah. Well, I was never at my sharpest from the end of the 89 season. 
I guess because of my attitude and the way it was, I was going to say get by with it. But I guess I was still working hard. I was still training hard. I wasn't. I wasn't not doing that. I probably just had taken the edge off being at my peak. To be honest, I guess you could say, um, because I, I, I don't. I don't remember an awful lot about that season. There are certain things, certain games that I remember things, but the season itself is a bit of a blur. Somebody told me that I, I was I was voted uh, Echo Player of the Year, and I was kind of like, how did I do that? I don't remember. You know, you generally when you're playing, you know how you do. You know, proper players understand where they are. You know, they understand if they're not the best. They understand when things are just, Things are just nice and clear, and they understand when they're fit as a fiddle, and you know when you're carrying it. You know, you know all these things, but that that season's a bit a bit of a fog, to be to be perfectly honest with you. As was the, the previous one, the year after the year after Hillsborough. It's a pivotal season in Liverpool's history. The generation before mine would have seen this with the great Leeds team of the mid seventies. Every great side reaches a point where that cycle comes to an end. And looking back, this is the year really where it became clear that finally, after nearly 20 years of dominating the English game, that this Liverpool dynasty was on the wane. The younger generation would have seen this with Manchester United post Alex Ferguson. Graham Souness, your old teammate, had returned to the club in April 91, succeeding Kenny Dalglish as Liverpool manager. I don't think anyone would have had any argument at the time with that appointment. An incredible player, an incredible captain, just in. I think two and a half years as captain, the amount of trophies that Liverpool team won under him. And I've always maintained that I can't recall. I'm not saying he was the greatest British player I've seen in my lifetime. I, I, I would argue, though, that I'd never saw a more important player to any team just as, as a captain, as a leader and as a player. Yeah. Just just no, incredible. Yeah. It's, just, it's the classics. You walk on the field and you look beside you and he's standing there. You're like, oh, that's, that's, again, proper players. That's how that's how they work things out. They have a look around and they look at the other side and you look at this side and you go, you know what? I'm glad I'm on this side. And that's what you do when you weigh him. Obviously, you read the book, you know, the, the, the one about good and Rome. Let's go down and see them. I mean, it's just it's just classic soonness. I was speaking about this to Tony Evans. You guys are all coming out in your in your tracksuit tops for the final. Graham Sooners has his tracksuit top. He's the only one on the Liverpool team with the tracksuit top unzipped. Now, I don't know what I can read into that, if anything, but it looks different. And he's walking as if he's just walking on the beach and he's just completely unfazed by the hostility that you guys encountered that night from the fans. So he's come in as manager, brilliant record up in Scotland with Glasgow Rangers. At this stage, 91, I mean, you, you've been at Liverpool 10 years by this point. You've never finished outside of the top two. So I think everybody's thinking this Liverpool side, they're probably going to be challenging for the title again. Are you able to remember maybe what you expected from Graham Souness as a manager? No, no, I, I, I really hadn't. I, I kind of expected him just to be the same as he was when he was a player, just leading, leading the team and, and being the focal point. Again, you know, you've read the book, and I'm kind of going to say what I said in the book, that that 20 years that you were talking about, that dynasty, a large part of it was about buying the best players that were available, smattered in with a couple of, you know, sensible younger players, people like Phil Neal, all the way through to myself. But they always kind of went out and signed the name when they were at the top, 
and it was generally a British player. And as soon as pretty much did that when he came in, he signed players who at the time were regarded as the best around. It's it's difficult to turn around and see well he you know, people blame him for a lot of things, but the players they bought, everybody else in Britain in the in the first division, then to be the Premier League, wanted these players. So you can't really point the finger at them for buying bad players. Now you can certainly say things didn't work out, and and I would suggest that a lot of the reasons for that would be some of the players themselves. You know, going to a club like Liverpool and, and joining a team that for 20 years has been at the top, and you're just expected to keep it there. Again, it's not until you leave you understand the reasons why it was like that for 20 years, uh, and not everybody can can join a team like that. And not only fit in, but but make it stronger and make it bigger and make it better and keep it going. So as far as the the players were concerned that he signed, they just they just didn't work out. And a lot of the players he signed, a lot of them I'm sure were because of the the change of the rules. The rules started to change about playing in Europe, where you could only have three three foreigners. I mean, you look at you look at our team through the years. There's not been that many Englishmen in it. Those 20 years you're talking about, there's probably more foreigners than, than there was Englishmen playing in the team, certainly through the 80s. So changes had to be made for that reason as well. So there was a lot of things, a lot of things were going on in football in general back then. But certainly there was a lot going on with us at Liverpool because of the changes, because of the new manager, Kenny leaving, the whole Hillsborough thing, the whole kind of cloud that was hanging over the club. So it was it was definitely a tough time. And it was a tough time for anybody to take over. Never mind, never mind Shannon's. Alan Hansen had also retired the same day that Kenny Dalgleish had, had resigned. And I suppose you're looking at one of the, the two players that everybody in the country was chasing that summer, Mark Wright and Dean Saunders, who both signed for Graham Souness. Mark Wright periodically reached the heights that people might have predicted for him at Liverpool. There were periods where he did show that form and there were periods where he didn't. But if you were looking maybe for an English player who might have been able to, or who you could say maybe resembled Alan Hansen a bit in style, it would have been Mark Wright. So that signing made sense. Dean Saunders for Peter Beardsley, perhaps less so. And John Barnes is out injured for most of that season. Ian Rush, I think, is out injured. You look at the departures that summer, Peter Beardsley, Gary Gillespie, David Speedy. You, you've also got, though, youngsters like Stevie Staunton leaving. I, I guess that was because of that European ruling that, that yep. was coming Ray in. Houghton. Ray Houghton. Same Ray thing. Houghton, yeah. I think he leaves in 92. So, so think, about, think about what you just said there. In the space of six months, you've lost, you've lost Dalglish and Hansen, two of, the, two of the, the figureheads of the club. Uh, you've got Banzi out with Achilles tendon injury, which means he's away in the background. You've got Rossi out, another experienced guy who's out. Gary Gillespie, another experienced guy who's out. Uh, you lose Steve Staunton. You lose Henry Houghton, another experienced guy who's moved on. You know, you've you've <laughs> the secret to most successful dynasties, if you want to call it that, are there's always this core. And I started off by saying generally you want to add a couple of players. Which means when you're adding a couple of players, obviously there's a couple that have to go. But if you're if you're just doing this over a period of time, then it's it's almost on you just you know, from the outside you don't notice it. That's the way to do it. You have the solid core and then you're just adding little pieces onto it. 
and then dropping little pieces off at the bottom. Regardless of who it is, whether it's me or Phil Thompson or anybody else, it's just it's just the way the game evolves. People get old, they pass their best, and they move on. But if you can stay at that level, the way to do it is to keep that core and just add on little bits. And so the two that you add on in three or four years, they're now your core, and then the whole the whole thing keeps going around. And that's what happened for twenty years. So you know you think of, you think of what I said there. Look at the look at the experience and 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 the leadership that has disappeared pretty much in the space of six months. But yet you're bringing players in, and you're bringing players through with a smattering of myself and a couple of others. But yet you're supposed to be Liverpool, the all conquering Liverpool. If you look at it that way, that's pretty unrealistic. You made a great point in your book, though, and. I'll refer to it here because you've mentioned that, you know, Liverpool would regularly buy big name players, bring them in. But up until 87, when John Barnes and Peter Beardley come in and go straight into that team, the way more often than not used to be the kids that were signed, Ian Rush, yourself, Ronnie Whelan, Craig Johnston, you'd come in and Mm. fans wouldn't see you for, for a year or two. You're in the reserves learning the Liverpool way. And then you have your breakthrough season. And then I think Ian Rush maybe is the Glenn Hussey, maybe 89, the last big signings that come into that team. And it's kind of aging. You've got kids coming through. There's there's a lot going on, as you say. Liverpool were back in Europe in 91, 92 in the UEFA Cup. How important was it for the team to, to be back in Europe after the Heisel ban? Well, it was huge for the club to get back in Europe. But, but again, from a player's point of view, we weren't at our best. And as great as it was to be back in Europe, at the end of the day, our job was to to be to be playing on the field. Uh, all the other stuff is fantastic. You know, we should never have been banned in the first place. But now that we're back, then great. But but then again, once you get over that, it's about playing on the field. And the, the campaign was disappointing. You can still remember it. Still remember going out. I think I think that was the year we went out to Genoa. Yeah, in the quarterfinals. Yeah, I still I can still remember it. I wouldn't say we outplayed them, but in the first leg we were we were way in control of the game and lost two 0 And so I remember the excitement coming back to Anfield because of the way we'd played, although we'd lost a couple of late goals. Uh because of the way we'd played and dominated the game, we were all everybody was excited. There was there was an atmosphere in the ground that hadn't been there for a long time. Obviously because we hadn't been in Europe, but there was a real there was a real excitement, you know, and you could feel it as a player and we couldn't wait for the game to get started. But unfortunately, <laughs> 10 minutes into it, <laughs> the game was over. You talk about a letdown, but just uh, just, just a disappointment now. There had been, though, I think that that turnaround, I think you might have missed a game through injury against Dorzair in the, in the second round, uh, a late goal from Mark Walters. The atmosphere that night, it was a game shown by the BBC. The atmosphere at Anfield that night when that final goal went in was just, uh, it was incredible. It showed how special European nights were um, for Liverpool. Just wondering, before the Heisel ban, Liverpool, you know, back in the day when you... You just just reminded me of something. We, uh, because I I played in the second leg in Auxerre, I think, was that nil-nil? No, we the, fir- the first leg was in France. You, you, I think you captained the team that night and you lost 2-0. Aye, aye. I, do, I remember, well, what I remember is after the game, because there was a lot of supporters there, and we got to the airport and the supporters that had gone were going mental. 
because we hadn't gone over and clapped them. And and I remember thinking to myself, I don't know about any other lads, but the reason I didn't want to go over is because I didn't want to show my face. It wasn't because we didn't want to clap them. I was too embarrassed. Too embarrassed to go over and, and, and clap. I wanted to get, get off the field and stick my head in the bucket because we were so poor. And so the fans, the fans obviously, they took it the, the wrong way that we didn't go over. But again, I can't speak for anybody else, but I was too embarrassed to go over. The club had had this astonishing run in the European Cup back in the days when you either had to win it to be in it or you had to win your domestic title and Liverpool had been in the European Cup for nine consecutive seasons. As one of the old guard, was it slightly harder to get yourself motivated for the UEFA Cup? No, 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 not at all. I think at the end of the day, again, in my book, I said there's a generation of footballers in England, but a generation of players that, that hadn't, had the, the European experience. Again, normally when you go into Liverpool, you, you're sucked into the culture, and so it's just normal. It becomes normal. You're playing big games and to play in Europe and everything else becomes normal. But then when you're when you're thrown out of it for, what, five years, then you lose the experience, basically. And then the players that come in, uh, they don't have that experience either. So you're kind of starting again. You're going back to the very start. It's exciting, but you're starting all over again. Something that has maybe been forgotten, you know, in the, in the intervening decades, but which possibly accelerated the decline mm. of that early 90s Liverpool side is, I think, one of the strangest injury crises I've ever seen at any club where the senior players were just dropping like flies that season. It was so pronounced. Graham Souness did an interview with Des Lynham on, on Sports Night where he was talking about how they'd analysed the training to see what they were doing wrong. But pretty much, including yourself, every senior player missed a chunk of that season, which is why so many kids were playing that season. And you had United that season were bringing in Ryan Giggs, able to take him out whenever they wanted, bring him in gradually. But at Liverpool, the kids were having to be thrown in at times, week in, week out. Yeah, again, uh, you kind of you kind of just put all these things aside when you're playing, you know. You don't read the papers. You don't listen to. You just you, you get on with the hand you're dealt. You don't dwell on injuries. You don't dwell on Barnsley not being fit or Russia not being fit. So these are these are things that again, again, I can only talk for myself. But it was a case of yes, okay, we we got the kids. These kids are going to have to play. That doesn't mean we have to lower the standards if that's the right way of putting it. You know, you still have to go out and try and be what you're supposed to be. Now, again, when you're older and you look back now, that's a stupid thing to think because that's impossible. It's impossible to ask Jamie Redknapp and Don Hodgson and... and um, Steve McManaman featured heavily that year, didn't he? Okay, yeah, I'm thinking of, um, I'm thinking of uh, you know, uh, left back, Steve Harkness. Steve Harkness, yeah. You're asking people to do things. You know, Macker eventually was carrying Liverpool for three or four years, in my opinion. But even Macker in his first season is, is learning the game. And they're all learning the game. Don Hodgson, another one. I don't want to mention Don. So you've got, you've got maybe five, at least four, maybe five players on the field who are learning the trade, who unfortunately for them are being compared to Liverpool teams of the past because that's just the way it is, it's impossible. No wonder we lose the last game of the season at home to Norwich before the cup goes, things like that. You know, Again, 
I've never been so disillusioned the way that that game went. Last game before the court, when we end up getting beat at home in Orange, and at the time you're like, you know, you're, you're sitting after going home, and you're like, wow, we just lost at home in Orange on 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 a day when there should have been an occasion. But then think about it now, you go, hold on a second. <laughs> Regardless of the opposition, you're talking about four and five guys who who are learning the game. How are they supposed to go and handle that sort of day and and perform? the way that Liverpool teams are expected to every time we step on the field, how are they supposed to live up to, to the teams of the past when they're just learning the game? So it really, it, in all honesty, again, thinking about it now, it was an impossible task for these young guys to go and do, to go and do what Liverpool teams were expected to do. There is a period in the middle of that 91-92 campaign where Liverpool's form under Graham Souness does pick up and they put together a run, I think, of only one defeat in 18 games. It's a shock 1-0 defeat at Peterborough in early December in the in the League Cup. And in your book, you, you mention how this leads to a, a curious run of results against lower league clubs in the following couple of seasons. There's um, the FA Cup defeats at home to Bolton and Bristol City. Again, what do you put that down to? Because that's just unthinkable in, in the 80s team that you were part of. Up until 1991, that's unthinkable. Well, the, what you're talking about now is, is forget ours. You know, the, op- the opposition psyche before this period was, we're done before we start. Christ, we're playing Liverpool. We're playing against him. We're playing against him. We're playing against him. The whole psyche of the opposition goes that way and ours is going the other way. You go from feeling invincible to, you know, we better be careful here or we better do this and do that. And the opposition are going from, I wonder how many we're going to get beat by, to we might actually be able to win. That in itself, before you even kick a ball, is what happens when something like that happens to us, that period of time that we're going through. You look at the Liverpool team of, what, the last 18 months, um, of the 18-month period where they were unbeatable, the same thing happened when they lost that first game at home in the pandemic, and then, of course, they have another bad result. All of a sudden, the psyche changes for everybody. That team goes and loses six games at home. Unheard of. Unheard of. But a part of that is the whole the whole switcheroo of we're invincible. How many are we going to win by today where the opposition are going from how many are we losing by today to we can actually go here and win. So just that whole psyche, the mental side of it, changes a lot of things. Still to come on When Shorts Were Short. Whatever you do during the week, if that makes you what you are on a Saturday, perfect. But the minute it goes wrong, don't come to me because you know where the blame lies. That was it. If you went out six days a week, and on the seventh day played and played great, you'd still be the team the next day, even if they knew you'd been out six days before. But the first day the first day you dropped the ball, you would get the warning, and the second day you'd be out. Do you think Graham Souness grasped the scale of the job facing him? In that first season, do you think it took him a while to to fully understand what was going on at the club? <laughs> Listen, you could have 
you could have stuck. You could have stuck anybody. You you, you pick a, a man. You pick a, a world class manager from the past or the present. If you'd stuck any of them in that situation that he walked into, I'm sorry. I'm betting there wouldn't have been too much difference. He he just walked into a a club that had more things on their mind than what was happening on the field, basically. To look at it another way, you know, I said before, the whole focus of the club had changed. You know, one one man walking in isn't going to change that focus back to what happens on a Saturday the way it does at every successful club. When he's dealing with having to change a lot of the team because of injury, having to change a lot of the team because you need to move players on, having to play young guys, signing players to make us better, we're finding the change difficult. Then you've got the whole the Hillsborough thing coming, hanging over the club as well. And then you've got the, the change of rules in, in UEFA. So many things going on. I mean, I'd, I'd love somebody to tell me who, who could have gone in there and been able to deal with that. Which was the perfect opportunity, really, for Manchester United to step up their development at that time, which was going slowly. It was on the right course, but every year they were winning a trophy. And then there's that Arsenal side under George Graham, who, if you could argue any team knocked Liverpool off their perch, it was that Arsenal side. But they fall away too at the same time. So that season, you've got United and Leeds battling it out for the league. There is a period in the middle of the season where Liverpool are on a long, unbeaten run, just one defeat the Peterborough defeat in 18 games. There's a televised game. Liverpool beat Arsenal 2-0 at Anfield, move up to third, but eight points behind Leeds and United. You may not remember the game, but do you remember ever thinking during that run, okay, we might be back on track here. There's a chance we might do something here in the league. No. (laughs) No. Because in, in, in the next league game, Liverpool did lose at home 2-1 to Chelsea. And then it just, again, there's a... No, because because when, you've, when you've been there and and there's this, I don't know, you call it a smell, but you, you when you're in the middle of it and you've experienced, you know what's going on. You know what you're capable of. And, and the fact that all the things we've spoken about, where you've got players out, you've got young players out, you've got guys trying to fit in, guys trying to figure out how to do this. With it. So the one thing you're not going to get is consistency. That's that's probably the most important one. And as I said, having been having been through the ringer a few times, when you're winning league titles, if nothing else, you you need to have some sort of consistency. And we didn't have that. Yes, you're saying we went on a run, but the fact you're saying, oh, you went on a run, tells you that we weren't consistent before. So it's a case of how long does that run last. You know, as opposed to, oh, my God, yes, you lost a game here. Or, wow, you, you drew three games in a row. You know, we're not talking about that. We're talking about a team that would win one week and lose the next week. But then, oh, they put a run together. That's not doesn't sound like the kind of team that's going to win a league. By that point, you've got Michael Thomas has made a surprise move from Arsenal. Steve McMahon's moved on to Manchester City. The one standout signing that season from memory is Rob Jones in your old position at right back. The FA Cup is your only chance of winning something. The quarterfinal is at home to Villa, the only top flight club you play yeah. en route to, to Wembley. And it's interesting because I think you had a few players back from injury that day, a few senior players who were all involved in the goal. And then there's a curious semi-final against Portsmouth where, again, you're looking at... She got beaten the first leg at Ivory. That was the Darren Anderton goal, was it, the first game? Yeah. 
we should have got beat at Highbury. We were awful. They had a couple of chances. Never took them. Um, they did get the one, as you said. And then we end up with the, the great quiz question of who scored the goal that when Liverpool equalised against Sheffield, uh, against Portsmouth in the FA Cup semi-final. I remember it because the free kick was on me. I tried to make a, a Maisie run and ended up getting fouled. And then, of course, Banzi's hit it off the post and Ronnie Whelan's put it in. So that's that's how I can remember that. But the game itself, no, Portsmouth, Portsmouth should have gone through. By the time of the replay, Graeme Souness is in hospital having his um, heart surgery. I mean, again, you know, in the space of just over a year, two Liverpool managers struggling with their health shows the pressure of, of life at, at, at a big club. How did that affect the players? Um, not particularly, because because pretty quickly we were told, look, you know, because initially you think, well, what's going to happen here? Because... If somebody's done a heart operation, it's going to be months. But we were told pretty quickly that, look, Gaffer's going to be back in a few weeks, not a few months. And so we all knew that. It didn't really affect us, to be honest. You talk in the book about the 2-0 win over Sunderland in the FA Cup final. You talk of being happy for a number of teammates who hadn't been in an FA Cup final before, uh, who won their first FA Cup. And it's the last of many honours that you win with Liverpool. But you also talk about how this victory felt different from the others in that you didn't actually feel much. Well, because we didn't, we didn't have a, a we, we had a strange dressing room. <laughs> you know, I guess, I guess the easy way to explain it is that, you know, previously the dressing room was about as tight and about as solid um, as, as it could be. Um, and, and that wasn't the case uh, and again it wasn't the case not because we had a bunch of a bunch of knobheads it was a case because there were so many different problems going on around the club for everybody things that we, we keep coming back to and it's, and it's again all the stuff that we've talked about is again the reason why the dressing room wasn't together because you've got a bunch of young kids who learning again Learning to be in a, in a in a dressing room. You've got guys coming from other dressing rooms coming in, not sh- quite sure where they're fitting in. You've got you've got your experienced guys that that would have more to say in the dressing room who are not there. I mean, so you've got so many things going on that <laughs> it, again, looking back, it's impossible to have a united dressing room when when you've got a whole host of different things going to get thrown in together. You've also you also had a number of different captains that year because of the injury. I mean, you had a lengthy spell as captain. Do you think there was? I know that you, you in the book you say Mark Wright when he was given the captaincy on a permanent basis by Graham Souness, and he'd hold that for a year before losing it. He actually had the decency to turn up at your house to to talk it through with you, which I thought was a nice touch. But do yeah, you think absolutely. maybe for for some of the the, the older guard? It was just a bit strange that a new guy would come in to such a successful club that wasn't quite finished yet and, and take the armband. Did that illustrate how Liverpool had fallen, maybe, in, in some way? No, I don't think that's probably the right way to put it. I think, I think, I think at the end of the day, him getting it then was the right choice, to be honest. You know, I'm talking about, we're talking about people being injured and people not playing and, and being out for a period of time. And so, it, it, to be honest, it, it it, it seemed a natural move. It, at the time, thinking about it, it was like, you know what, 
right, he could be a captain for the next, like, maybe three years, you know. Uh, I think, what age was he, like, 28 or something at the time? Yeah. So, you know, so, no, it, did, it didn't seem the wrong thing. I mean, right, he was experienced. It's not like, it's not like, right, he was, was just 20 years old, coming from nowhere. You know, he's, he was an experienced international player with, with a pedigree in the top league. So, no, it wasn't, it seemed like the right thing at the right, at, at the time. The the season ends with Liverpool. Well, before the cup final, Liverpool had finished uh, sixth, their lowest position since eighty one. Before we wrap up this interview, did you think that ninety two cup success would trigger a, a new wave of success? Did you feel that the team could build on that? I'm thinking that far ahead. <laughs> I'm thinking that far ahead. The other big new signing alongside Mark Wright had been Dean Saunders. I mean, Liverpool had gone from, you know, having that type of Beardsley player playing in the hole just behind the front man to having two front men, Ian Rush and Dean Saunders. And I know they they played together for Wales. Did that necessarily, was that the right combination for Liverpool, having two out-and-out strikers? Listen, the, the, the truth is, is that if you'd put the, the Liverpool size of previous years behind Ian Rush and Dean Saunders, we would have won games. You know, so, you know, you can't, you know, we had, we had problems all around the field. So when you've got problems all around the field, it it's generally means that whoever's playing centre-forward is going to have less chances and less goals. <laughs> because if, if you're flying behind, if you've, got a, if you've got a back line that's as solid as a rock, you've got a midfield that's as solid as a rock defensively, but has players that can create, and you stick Dean Saunders and Ian Rush on top of that, you're going to get goals and you're going to win games. So I, I, I don't think the fact that it was Rush and Dean, and, and Dean had, had anything to do with us not winning games, to be honest. If we created chances for them, they would have scored goals. Last couple of questions. In the early 90s, football was starting to change slowly. And I want to ask you this because you've been a manager. Um, sports science is making its first hesitant steps in that early 90s era. Graham Souness has spoken many times of trying to introduce changes to diets uh, during his time at Liverpool, weaker lager on the team bus, trying to stop fishing chips on away games and how these moves were resisted. How dare he be so sensible? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, think how stupid that sounds now. When people back then were criticising him for doing that, how stupid does that sound now? As someone who went on to be a manager a decade later, and I were a manager for a long time in the States, I guess the answer is yes, you were able to finally see that that made sense. Yeah, oh, 100%. 100%. And I think the old... <laughs> it's very it's very difficult because you, you're, your outlook on sports scientists will only be from the era in which you grew up. I absolutely, 100%, I'm not stupid enough to think that a sports scientist can help people. But I think, unfortunately, we've gone from, you know, my my initial era of growing up football, where before you actually ended up being in a proper first team of a proper team, you had gone through some sort of real-life stuff that equipped you. It had nothing to do with football, but equipped you for for the pitfalls and everything else. So, yes, I think sports scientists are, are great, and if they can help somebody, they're fantastic. But I think what we've done now is we're in a situation now 
where all the players are coming through generally from academies. And so by the time they actually step on the field for the first team, they've no idea about anything, how to face anything. They've got no reference to to something being difficult and how do I how do I face this? How do I how do I in my head, how do I work it out and think about how to overcome it and all these things? I think that's unfortunately you couldn't play I don't think kids coming through now could survive without sports scientists. I think that's the stage we're at, it seems to me, because when I talk I mean I have been coaching since since two thousand and ten. But everybody I speak to, they all say the same thing. The kids that are coming through are driving them crazy because they've got no idea about anything. And and if things go wrong in their mind, it's not it's not their fault and it's not their responsibility because nobody's told them what to do. That's kind of the impression I'm getting from all the guys in football right now, that these kids coming through when things go wrong, the very last person they look at is themselves. Whereas the years I came from, it's absolutely right. This is where we start. We start with you. And then you work your way back. It's, it's, it's completely gone the other way. It's not about them. It's not their fault. Nobody told them. You didn't tell me the guy was going to cross up his left foot. You said to watch his right foot. I mean, just things as stupid and as straightforward as that. Those are things that are going on today with with young kids. Anyway, as I said, I want to make sure sports scientists absolutely, if they can help somebody and it makes them better, then then I, and you can afford that, I'm all for it. I have to ask. Uh, I think there's a there's a, a passage in your book. I think it's some Scottish international teammate mentions that he sat down with you and you you worked your way through 14 packets of crisps during a chat. How would Steve Nichol? the manager have handled Steve Nichol, the player who off the pitch, his eating habits pretty much went against the grain in any era, really. I mean, smoking, crisps, chips, beer. How, how would you have handled the player that you were? You know, there was kind of a, not a, not a we'll put it this way. From the minute I got to Liverpool, generally it was, you do what you've got to do to make sure when you step on the field on a Saturday, you're at your best. Whatever you do during the week, if that makes you what you are on a Saturday, perfect. But the minute it goes wrong, don't come to me because you know where the blame lies. That was it. If you went out six days a week and on the seventh day played and played great, you'd still be at the team the next day, even if they knew you'd been out six days before. But the first day, the first day you dropped the ball you would get the warning and the second day you'd be out. So that's kind of how that's kind of how it was. It wasn't don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. Again, kind of what I was talking about with the kids growing up. You know, all the responsibility was on you. If you want to go eat 14 bags of crisps and and play badly because of it, then it's on you. But if you play well, that's fine. But so it's it's kind of a responsibility thing. Tony Evans, the writer, passionately argued, and I agree with him. He, he he told me that had you had one fixed position in your Liverpool career, namely right back, you know, you were groomed as Bill Neal's long-term successor. It didn't quite happen. You stayed in the team, but you were pretty much everywhere. You arrived from Air United as this young emerging right back. And Tony Evans argued that had you stayed at right back, 
after Phil Neal left, you would have been lauded as one of our greatest ever right backs. Instead, you know, you, you were a guy that could play right midfield. You had that brilliant time at left back in that 87, 88 team. You could play at centre half as you, you know, you, you won the, the Footballer of the Year award in 88, 89, playing at centre half. Was it ever frustrating for you that you never were never given that opportunity to specialise in one position or it didn't matter? Never crossed my mind. <laughs> never crossed my mind. Listen, if you get a game for Liverpool, doesn't matter what position it's in, you're not doing too bad. Thank you to Steve for his time. Thank you also to Claire at Reach Sport for putting me in touch with Steve. Steve's autobiography, Five League Titles and a Packet of Crisps, is published by Trinity Mirror Sport Media and is available via all good bookshops. And of course, that online giant that we all know but don't like to admit we use as often as we do. As always, please do rate and review when shorts were short on Apple Podcasts, even if that's not the podcast provider you use to subscribe. Apple Podcasts remains the all-important way for any show to grow, especially the small ones like this. Reviews do help other people to find the podcast. Thank you all for listening. Thank you for supporting the podcast. The show can be followed on both Twitter and Instagram at Shorts Were Short and Facebook.com forward slash Shorts Were Short. If you want to join the group page, please do. If you want to drop the show an email, you can get me at shortswithshort at 1607westegg.com. All my work is at danielruistizen.com. Thank you for your time. The artwork is by Tom Hadfield. The music is 80 synth pop by Toto Cyberspace. I've been Daniel Ruiz Tyson. This has been When Shorts Were Short. If the shorts weren't short, we don't talk about it. Mm-hmm.